Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris Media, a network that connects you more deeply with the music you love. I'm a dad and a husband first, but out in the world, I'm a professional musician and a political junkie. For those that know me, this connection between politics and music is natural. So each week, I'll be speaking with top-notch political reporters, policy experts, and musicians about what's at stake in this seismic moment of cultural change. Welcome to the Politics of Truth. Filling in for Bob, I'm Doug High, former communications director for the Republican National Committee, as well as deputy chief of staff to House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, and a CNN political commentator. My first guest is ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl, one of the most respected and recognizable journalists covering the White House. I recently read Jonathan's latest book, the New York Times bestseller, Front Row at the Trump Show, and it truly captures his front row access to what's felt more like a television production than a governing administration. In our conversation, Jonathan describes when he first met Donald Trump way back in 1994 as a junior reporter for the New York Post and how he and his colleagues have needed to adapt in order to do their jobs in a White House that views the press as the enemy. I hope you enjoy. John, thanks so much for joining. Doug, great to be here. I'm excited to have you for a lot of reasons. Part of it is you could have written front row at the Bush show, front row at the Obama show, and obviously the Trump show, you go back to back when he was in in New York City as a businessman and you were working for the New York Post. Can you tell me about how you first saw Donald Trump and when you first met him and reached out to him? It's it's really a unique vantage point, which is why I I felt a a, a need, just just a burning need to write this book and tell this story. Because I, I don't think anybody quite has the same vantage on, on this phenomenon, this thing that we have just been living through. I have been at the White House covering four different presidents now, um, one of them quite different from the other three, but each of them <laughs> different in their own way, uh, beginning with the, with the, uh, the, the last uh, two years of, of Clinton. I spent some time in my CNN days during the uh, aftermath of the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal. Uh, and then the second part of it is, I, I, as you alluded to, I first met Donald Trump in 1994 <laughs> uh, when, when nobody thought of this guy as a political figure, uh, let alone somebody that would actually run for president or, my lord, be elected president. And I was, at the time, a very low man on the totem pole uh, reporter for the New York Post. And I had, you know, just started. I'd been working there a, a few months, and I was an aspiring political reporter. I wanted to cover politics. I didn't really care about covering, you know, celebrity or, you know, tabloid scandal or any of that kind of stuff. And I, I had worked my way up to being kind of the um, number three person for the number four paper at City Hall <laughs> at the time. But, but you know, by the way, there was a uh, the mayor at the time who, uh, and I started the day before he was sworn in as mayor, was a guy named Rudy Giuliani. So little did I know where the world would take me. But but the long and the short of it is, as I, I describe in the book, I um, I was working at City Hall one day, and uh, the news broke that Michael Jackson had secretly married uh, Lisa Marie Presley, <laughs> the daughter of Elvis. <laughs> so you had the king of pop marrying the daughter of the king of rock and 
roll and it was a secret marriage. Nobody had seen the newlyweds uh, in public and it was reported that they were staying at Trump Tower. Now, the New York Post, as you can imagine, with a story like this breaking, that you're not going to make it through with Giuliani's latest budget proposal. You know, I mean, you got to, you know, what, what, how are we going to get in the paper the next day? So I, uh, I placed Headless the call. body found in topless bar. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So I took out a phone book. We used to have phone books back then. I don't know if you remember those things. Um, and I looked up the number for the Trump organization and I asked for Donald Trump. <laughs> and uh, and I, I got through to him actually surprisingly quickly. Um, I got to, first to his gatekeeper, a woman named Norma Federer, and I asked her to talk to, to Mr. Trump. And she said, well, what do you want to talk about? And I said, well, I've got a story idea for him. I was like, what is it? You have to understand, uh, Doug, at, at this moment in time, because the news had been out there a little bit, Trump Tower was now the subject of the most intense paparazzi media, you know, circus you know, I, I also covered the O.J. Simpson um, <laughs> trial for, for the Post. So it's a very similar level of, <laughs> of, of intensity. Everybody, you know, all the, all the photographers, camera crews, gawkers, everybody wanted to try to get a glimpse of Michael and Lisa Marie. So they actually cordoned off Trump Tower and pushed everybody across the street, uh, basically closed off much of that block. I called up uh, and I said, look, I want to talk to Mr. Trump about why the most famous newlyweds on the planet decided to have their honeymoon at Trump Tower. <laughs> so, so he did. He did. Uh, he decided to call me back. And, and I ended up going over there, walking past the police lines, right to the lobby, right up to the 26th floor, met him there. He gave me a whole tour, uh, introduced me to Michael's bodyguard, showed me where they were staying, showed me the getaway car in the basement they used to... to uh, <laughs> you know, to avoid the, the paparazzi outside. I mean, it was insane. It, but I, I tell you, I, I never thought that it that I'd be looking at somebody that my kind of, <laughs> my professional yeah. life would end up so entwined in, and that he would end up like, that we would both end up at the White House. I mean, both things are <laughs> improbable. Uh, I think his was slightly more improbable than mine, but they were both improbable. Well, and that goes to, you know, the one thing that we really know about Trump is his love and constant consumption of news media. And so, you know, compare that to an Obama who was more, let's say, aloof with the media or a Bush who was hostile to the media, but certainly not on the Trump level. How does that make your job easier or harder or both? Well, you know, first of all, the contrast was incredible. I mean, like every president cares about how they're being reported about. I mean, I'm, I'm reading this wonderful book about presidents and press uh, going back to George Washington. And, and uh, George Washington uh, hated the criticism he got in papers that were uh, very loyal to Thomas Jefferson. And he, and he rather obsessed over it. Uh, so every president has always obsessed over how they're portrayed. But Nobody's as eager a consumer of, of the news media and knows and courts the news media as Donald Trump, which, of course, is ironic because he portrays us as horrible, disgusting people, uh, the resistance, the opposition party, enemies of the people. But in reality, he is reading our stories, watching us on television, courting us, calling some of us at various times, you know, in, in a way that I that is co completely unlike the three presidents that I had interactions with uh, as a reporter, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. I mean, Obama, people like to talk about how there's this perception that Obama had this love affair with, you know, with the press corps, particularly the 
White House press corps. It's really not true. Obama couldn't care about the people that were covering him in that building. I mean, if, when he came in to a press conference, he knew me because I kind of irritated him. So, um, so he referred to me, but he almost never referred to reporters by name, primarily because he didn't know them. Doug, you know the geography of the White House briefing room very well, and you know that for years, since Helen Thomas retired, the Associated Press has the seat in the middle, mm -hmm. um, right next to the ABC seat, front row. It's been there. It's completely obvious. It's Well, I, I remember sitting next to my AP colleague one day uh, when, when Obama was coming in for a press conference in the briefing room. And, you know, he uh, looked out and he had the list of people he was going to call on that his press secretary had given him. I think at the time it was Jay Carney. And he would, he would read from his list. And I remember he got to the, you know, AP, by the way, always gets the first question pretty mm -hmm. much, right? So he, would, he looked down, he read the AP reporter's name, and then he looked up like he was waiting to see where the hand was going to go up. Uh, where, I mean, dude, of course, you don't know who the AP reporter is? <laughs> and, and he's just right in front of him. He's like, so he, you know, Obama didn't particularly like the way his administration was covered. No president does. And, you know, I think tried to ignore the coverage as much as he could. Trump obsesses over everything. I, I recount in the book a, a story I did on Labor Day. I mean, I don't think anybody except my mom was watching, you know. Um, it was way deep into the broadcast on World News Tonight because there wasn't much, frankly, happening in Washington. And I had a throwaway line towards the end of the piece. It was, it was what we call a kitchen sink piece. It's like, what's all the stuff that the president's up to? And, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I said, oh, yeah, and there's, you know, there, there's a hurricane that still weighs off, uh, but it's headed towards Florida. And uh, the president went to a briefing on it at FEMA. And, you know, he said that it was uh, potentially going to hit Alabama, but the National Weather Service said, no, 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 it's not going to Alabama. It was just a throwaway line. It was like he said it's going to Alabama, and the Weather Service said no. He tweeted at me, attacked me over it, said, you know, and, and, and then called me into the Oval Office the next day in this dramatic scene I describe in the book about my, quote, bullshit hurricane report. First of all, my story wasn't about the hurricane. It was just a mention in there. It was like, a, who cares? He misspoke. It's not a big deal. But he obsesses over it. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of restaurant critics who will say that when they go to a restaurant, obviously that's not happening as much these days as it, as it did a few months ago, that they don't necessarily get better service. They get more service, right? Right. Here's three desserts and, and so forth. Is that part of it with Trump? Is because he is such a voracious consumer of news? And we'll get to questions of honesty, you know, after this, but that there's just so much more of it because it, I think so many Americans feel just exhausted by all the news that's out there that, that the president drives. It's a marvel. And I think, Doug, for years and years, we are going to look back and, you know, maybe our grandchildren are going to look back and say, what the hell was that all about? I mean, he has dominated. He has failed in many things. He has wildly succeeded in a couple. Uh, one, pulling off the greatest political upset in American history and in, in, in winning in 2016. But the other thing is that he succeeded, and this I think is more important to him, is he has dominated the conversation in this country and around the world for four, maybe five years, because it started happening during the campaign. He has dominated news coverage to a degree that is unheard of, certainly far beyond his predecessors. 
he's dominated uh, hard news coverage, soft news coverage, uh, you know, gossip. Uh, I mean, everything. It's like it's been all Trump all the time. And he has desperately tried to fuel that. That's why I call it the Trump show, because he sees it as the Trump show. And he is constantly trying to find ways to further stoke people's interest, doing something outrageous, setting up cliffhangers, saying, oh, I'm going to do something in two weeks, come and see. Even if it never actually happens, which frequently it doesn't, he's always trying to tease something that's coming up and putting himself out in front of the press um, to a degree that, again, uh, we've just never seen. Yeah. Well, let, let's get to the White House briefing room. And you're, you're kind to say that I'm massively familiar with that room. I've been in it exactly one time. You've watched it more than once. I've, I've been in it twice. <laughs> one time on a tour yeah. and one time Ari Fleischer invited some House press secretaries to go to a gaggle. But you've been in it, if not a thousand times, 3,000 times maybe. Have your expectations of what you do when you go in the room and you have your list of questions, how is that different between now and Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, and with kind of the filter of quite often you know that what you're going to be told is fundamentally untrue? Well, first of all, I, I think I, I have to go back and see if I've, if I've missed one, but I think that I'm up to 15 press secretaries now that I've been <laughs> in there for. Four of them Trump press secretaries, and those four are entirely different from any of the other 11. You look at somebody who is standing at the podium at the briefing room, and we can get pretty cynical even before Trump. Like these, you know, these briefings are useless. They're, you know, a bunch of spin, you know, and reporters are just trying to, you know, get some airtime and press secretaries are just trying to, you know, whatever. But I've got to tell you that I've been in that briefing room in some pretty intense moments after a terrorist attack, during a military conflict. I mean, I remember being in there in, in the immediate aftermath of the Boston Marathon bombing, for instance, and, you're, and we just don't know what's going on. Is this part of a bigger attack? Is this... And, and you wait, and you whoever stands at that podium during those moments of crisis is not acting like Doug High, the spokesperson for the RNC chairman. You're acting as the spokesperson for the United States of America, really. Certainly for the executive branch, you're being seen not just by Americans, you're being seen by the world. The credibility may be a matter of life and death. So in my experience before January 20th, 2017, I had some pretty tense relationships with some of those press secretaries. Some I got along with very well, but always had, but had certainly moments of tension with all of them. But I never expected any of them to lie to me. I, I never really thought that that was within the uh, realm of of, of what was even possible. I mean, they were public servants. They would put the president in the best light. But if there was bad news, they would have to present that bad news because their job was to present what was happening. They're on, they're on the government payroll. Mike McCurry talks about it as you're kind of an in-between job. You work for the president. You represent the president to the press, but you also represent the press to the president. And you convey the, the questions and the concerns of the press corps to the to the White House staff and to the president himself. You know, so so now we're in a very different situation, and and we have obviously seen many many examples of press secretaries for the current administration using that podium as a way just to kind of obfuscate, do the president's bidding, and 
not seem to be moored to the truth. How does that affect how you report? You know, when you then have to, you know, it's at 6 p.m. when you're reporting, and obviously you're doing more than that, but when you, when you do that, how does that affect what you then present to your audience? Well, there are some things that are very different. One is, is you have, so you start from a position of not trusting the information that you're getting. There's a question of verifying. There's a question of fact-checking. So, you, so you, you play something that was said by the president or by one of his you know, spokespeople, and then you, your, your next couple sentences are why it was not true. <laughs> you know, There's much less emphasis, at least in my for me, on, on being first on stories anymore. Because I'm always, if, let's say I've got a great scoop. You know, they're going to announce X tomorrow. He's going to drop an executive order on this, you know, this afternoon. He's so-and-so is going to be fired. You know, so-and-so is going to be nominated uh, for the Supreme Court or for a cabinet post. I have come to the position in this White House, and I used to love getting those little scooplets. You know, I don't know why we reporters, it's kind of silly, but we, but we, we relish getting those scoops. But I don't run to the air or to reporting those scoops until I, I, I kind of basically believe it when I see the president tweet about it, <laughs> you know, because part of it is, hell, maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe they're trying to give me bad information to make me look bad. Maybe it is true. But when the president sees I'm reporting it, he's going to want to decide, um, <laughs> you know, let's make him look bad by doing something else. I mean, this, these are the thoughts that are going through the minds of White House reporters. Trust me. Uh, during this administration, which is bizarre. I mean, that is not normal, yeah. uh, but that's the way you kind of have to think about it. So as this is happening, you will have the president. So you may be in the briefing room being told something that's fundamentally no basis in fact, while you have the president out there attacking you or your colleagues specifically or generally as you know the enemy of the people and, and so forth. Obviously, neither of those are, are good but those are two very different things that are happening simultaneously. Do you find that one, whenever we get to a post-Trump era, how does that linger? And which ultimately do you think is, is more damaging? Well, I worry about what remains of all of this. I mean, I already see it a little bit. There was a, there was an incident you probably saw the last day or two uh, where one of the embed reporters, those are the, the, those are the reporters working for the networks for news organizations that travel around with the campaigns, asked uh, Joe Biden about this ridiculous, uh, you know, New York Post story on, on Hunter Biden. You know, the reporter was doing his job and, and, and would have passed along whatever Biden said. Biden could say this is a, this is a sleazy, you know, hit job and uh, I'm not going to comment on it. That's fine. But Biden attacked the reporter, and you know, when and said, "This is you know, this is stuff you do all the time," and blah blah. blah. CBS News reporter, for God's sake. And some people commented, "Look, this really isn't. This is not a good look for Biden." And Biden didn't look good in responding that way. But immediately, like the thunderous like counterattack is, "Look, Trump calls reporters enemies of the people. This is you know, leave Biden alone." It's like I just hope we haven't set a new bar. That is, it, 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 you know, if Biden wins and he becomes president, that you know, that the bar is as long as he's not like berating reporters and declaring us traitors to our country, everything is copacetic. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, truly, truly, Doug. I believe that all the people that I dealt with who had that job before January 20th, 2017, felt some kind of a, of, of a real personal duty 
to country and to the truth. I, I, I don't think they were all equally as adept in expressing that truth, but I think that they felt that, that, was, that, that there were clear guardrails of, of the parameters of that job. You, you have to be truthful. You know, I, I hope we get back to that. Yeah, and so you mentioned January 20th, 2017. I think we all remember that day. You obviously dealt with it in a, in a more personal way. You were there for that hastily scheduled press conference, which seemed to be a real harbinger of moving from Trump in theory to Trump in practice. Can, can you talk about that? Yes. So, so first of all, uh, that was a Saturday, uh, January 21st, the, uh, the, the, the hastily scheduled press conference. Uh, it was a Saturday evening, actually, uh, early evening. I actually was up in New York, so I was not in the briefing room for that because uh, we had our Sunday show, which I was on uh, the following day. My, my colleague Mary Bruce was sitting in the seat that I usually sit in. I, of course, watched very eagerly and in horror at two things. One, I listened to Sean Spicer said, by my quick count, at least three things that were verifiably untrue. And then, maybe even worse than the outright untruths, um, I'll give him credit. I won't call them lies at this point. Maybe he made a mistake. I don't know. But they were not true. He left without taking a single question. Now, that's a room where reporters ask public officials questions, especially and most prominently the press secretary. So the dude goes in, he yells at reporters, spews out a bunch of stuff that's not true, and then walks out? Are you kidding me? So I said that on Sunday when I went on our, this week with George Stephanopoulos. And then on Monday, Sean had his first actual briefing. Because that doesn't count as a briefing if you're not taking questions. He had his first actual briefing, picked up a suit that fit a little better, had a totally different tone. I think he was a little chastened by the way he'd been attacked almost across the board. And I asked him, Sean, is it your intention? You know, given we, you know, new start here, given what happened over the weekend, is your intention, can we say from this point on, that you will always tell the truth from that podium insofar as you understand the truth? And he gave me a nice answer. He said, yes, uh, you know, I'm an island, you know, blah, blah, blah. Didn't really keep that promise. But, um, but he took massive offense to that. I mean, he thought that I was questioning his integrity. But, but he didn't take offense in the moment. He actually, gave a, he actually gave a good answer. And there was a brief sense for like a day that we could have like almost a normal reporter's press office uh, relationship. And so when Kaylee started, she made it very clear, almost answering your question before you asked it of, I will not lie to you. Has that been the case? And how have you navigated those waters? Well, what was interesting with Kaylee McEnany is her job immediately prior to becoming White House press secretary was press secretary for the Trump campaign, and which is a very different job for all the reasons we just discussed. I mean, that's like, you know, you're back to my friend Doug High, you know, spokesperson <laughs> for the RNC. That's a very different job. You are expected to be a... Uh, you know, a partisan player and, you know, it's bare-knuckle politics and all that. But what was interesting is Kaylee left the campaign job to come to, for the White House job, now getting her salary paid by taxpayers and sitting in the same office that all those press secretaries from years past have sat in. And she didn't change one whit. It was the same thing. She was still the campaign spokesperson. Still, like, it was like... At times, it, it feels like I was watching somebody auditioning for a primetime show on a conservative uh, news network. It's been challenging, and obviously, 
you know, we, we, we've seen many points where she, she has said things that are not true. I think sometimes, maybe even maybe even all the time, but where, where she actually doesn't maybe know the truth. I mean, one most famously, she said at one point that the president gets tested multiple times a day for COVID-19. Sometimes multiple times a day. So I remember the, the president, I think it was even the same day, you have to check me on this, Doug, but um, so often the Kaylee McEnany will have a press conference, a, a briefing in the morning, and the president will have a press conference in the same room in the early evening. <laughs> It's a, it's a pretty untenable situation for a White House press secretary. I got to hand it to him. But but I said, so your press secretary just said that you uh, sometimes get multiple tests a day. Why why is that? And he said, no, I don't think that's ever happened. I no, I get just like every every two or three days I get a test. So <laughs> it's like, what, you know, what are you supposed to do with the information you get? Yeah. Who do you believe in that case, by the way? You're, you're sitting there, you're the reporter. You've been told one thing by the press secretary and one thing by the president on the same day. Yeah, I, that's, that's kind of a pick em, isn't it? Um, <laughs> there's, there's no right answer. <laughs> it's the politics of truth. Exactly. Well, let me ask you a final question. You mentioned the White House press secretary podium. And in your book, you report that the White House lowered the size of the podium to accommodate Sean Spicer. Now, do we know that to be true and... Is that an example of, or is that the example of how much the White House has become, or always was for this White House, a team of vipers that attacks each other in the media that further confuses voters of what is really happening? Well, in that case, you didn't need any White House sources to tell you anything because you saw that the podium was lowered. (laughs) Now, Now, maybe I took a leap in thinking it was for Mr. Spicer. But he's the he was the guy using the podium. I mean, so. if, if you didn't have a tape measure, that might be <laughs> fake news. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's um, it's just unbelievable. I don't even know how to answer. But um, <laughs> it's one of the nice things about that podium. It it can go up and down. It's a very it's a very fancy briefing room that was uh, that was renovated uh, in the uh, second Bush term. They've used every bell and whistle that was put in uh, has been used by really by the current press secretary. I mean, she's done a done a phenomenal job of of using the uh, the video capability. The uh, I mean, she's got it all. It's like it is like a show. I mean, and that's and I I think that's probably why the president probably likes his fourth press secretary the best. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll make a prediction to you that if Joe Biden wins, we will see footage of or pictures of no one on the Washington Mall for the inauguration and Trump supporters saying, look how few people Joe Biden has attending his inauguration. <laughs> so, yeah, that's going to be something. Man, what is the inauguration going to be like? I, wow. I assume it will be indoors with only members of Congress and, and you know select administration people present. Unbelievable. Well, Jonathan Carl, thank you so much. You know, you refer to kitchen sink stories and you are a kitchen sink reporter. You have had every press job in Washington, D.C., now the chief White House correspondent for ABC News and author of the New York Times bestseller and fantastic book. And what I can say is so often in Washington, people buy the book but don't read the book. I read the book in about three days. And, you know, because I emailed you about yes. three times a day, front row at the Trump show, buy the book, read the book. Jonathan Carl, thank you so much for joining us on The Politics of Truth. Thanks, Doug. Uh, Enjoyed the conversation. Take care. Thank you. Hey, 
Hey everybody, I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I've tried every razor blade on the market and I finally found the best one for me and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five blade razor, with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com politics to start shaving better today. Next, I speak with Susan King, Dean of the Hussman School of Media and Journalism at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and an accomplished journalist herself. I wanted to speak with Susan about the next generation of reporters that she works with and learns from every day, both inside and outside the classroom. Susan applauds her students' zeal for challenging authority and backing up their work with facts, and says that young people are often better writers than they get credit for. We also discuss the opportunities for young people in innovating with new forms of media, and the importance of maintaining certain reporting standards in a disrupted information environment. Dizzying as that environment can feel on a daily basis, my talk with Susan left me optimistic about where young reporters are headed. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be here. It's a Tar Heel day, beautiful blue skies. You know, God loves us here. <laughs> it's a good day to be a Tar Heel every day. Susan, earlier we spoke with Jonathan Carl, ABC chief White House correspondent, about how he deals with fundamental untruths coming from this White House, from the press secretary podium over the past four years, and over the top, I would say dangerous, attacks on the media from the president. We've come a long way from an event that I was at in Winston-Salem where George Bush, George H.W. Bush, went after the media by saying, annoy the media, reelect Bush. You work with students every day. How does this rhetoric offend them? Does it make them more eager? Does it scare off potential students? We have kind of a renewed sense of passion among our journalism students, so, so I don't feel they're scared off. I think the accountability question sort of at this moment, which is larger than the President of the United States, has turned them on. The real life for our students is living under this COVID pandemic, and their lives have been changed. It's also been during this time of really racial justice, protests in the street, racial reckoning on our campus. So the students, particularly those attracted to journalism, aren't just focused on what about the media, are we the enemy? They are really focused on the ability to challenge authority and they see journalism as being one of those things that can hold authority accountable. So I feel that it's not just where are we in the national conversation that Jonathan Carl is involved in, because he's in that White House briefing room every day. It's a little bit larger and really pertaining to their lives. Younger people communicate in very different ways than what are the more established ways of, of communicating or, or journalism. Do you find that they're looking for not just to be that next correspondent at the New York Times or CNN, but they're looking at a cheddar, a TikTok, um, the work that Peter Hamby does at Snapchat? How does how does that just brave new world in journalism at a time when journalism, you know, is a tough business? How do they view that? 
Well, I'm going to answer this in two parts. First, directly to your question. We try to get them to think about being innovators, not just to be at the New York Times or the Washington Post, but to really be at Cheddar and, and in fact, to reinvent their own news organization, maybe in, in Winston-Salem or in other places in North Carolina that are now news deserts. So we are encouraging them to do that. Having said that, we've also got quite a few people, and now at the top of the roster, both at the Washington Post and the New York Times, two women grads who are leading all this new invention of digital. So even if you go to some of those established news organizations, you're going to do it differently. So um, that's why I want to do it in two parts. We're trying to encourage them um, to really innovate. I want to say, though, that what I find they're obsessed with and partly because we are now the Hussman School, something new, and we have our values, pretty old values, on the wall. Values of objectivity and impartiality, and our role as journalists to inform the public and not just tell them what we think. The students are sometimes reading a lot more about perspectives from a young gay reporter or a young black reporter, a young Latino reporter, and they are really focused on how are you objective? Should we be objective? Is that sort of old-fashioned? And there's been a lot of talk around that that I think has really been valuable because they have been opened up to seeing the role they can play in society as journalists, not just as maybe really high-paid political opinion makers. So that's the obsession I find them at, at this moment. Objectivity and what is their role? Yeah, and I, I think one of the ways that we see that is the willingness of the press to, um, on every level, from a reporter at a briefing room to the chirons that we see at the bottom of the TV screen, to where I'll charitably say that there's always been an elasticity with the truth in, in politics. Mm. But this is different now, obviously, what we've seen just in the past few years. How do you prepare students for this? And is this a new normal that they, you think they should be prepared for or just a passing fad, so to speak? No, I don't think it's a passing fad. I think it is this era's fad. I mean, there was a Tom Wolfe new journalism era, and we've been sort of talking to them about that. That was when you wrote Cool, and, and it was another time of disruption. We really have to prepare students for what we don't know will come down the road in five years. So, you know, Cheddar still seems like the craziest news name I've ever heard. But, you know, there'll be something else. TikTok, our kids love TikTok. I, I never see it as news. I like watching the dancing, but it's turning into news. Instagram is the way most of them get their news. Twitter is old. You know, it's Instagram. I still can't even get my Instagram thing up, you know. So I think this is not a passing fancy. I think it will be indelible on those who are, who are living through this moment, whether they're writing for our DTH, our local newspaper, which is independent, or whether they're just studying it. It is odd to be called the enemy of the people, and we certainly bring that up. But they are still focused on their world more than just the political world. And one thing I'd like your sense of, Doug, I watched with amazement the president leaving the hospital now, what, two weeks ago, and walking up to the Truman balcony. I'd never seen any president walk up that way. And there's been a debate in some of our early reporting classes, our gateway classes, about how the media newspaper, the writers, use that. Did the president rip off his mask when he got up there? Did he take it off? Did he remove it? What is the verb that you use? If you're writing for Twitter, you're going to say, he ripped off his mask, because that's going to catch you. And then some people say that was a completely, you know, a biased verb. That's the kind of 
dilemma we are putting our students in, how you describe it in a, in a world where you've got to be action-oriented because no matter what you're writing or what you're broadcasting, you still got to get it out there on Twitter. And that's tight and short and got to be catchy. You mentioned the Daily Tar Heel, uh, obviously a paper I read every day for, for a few years, and, and I've read recently, um, as it's made a lot of news recently. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've seen this both at North Carolina um, and at other schools where there's a really increased role of student journalists, where the front page of, of the Daily Tar Heel can become a lead story nationally. Is that part of a new trend as well? And, you know, for me, the Daily Tar Heel only existed in print. Obviously, now it's online and, and doing innovative things. How are they using that innovation as well? They haven't innovated enough, and I've told the editors that, and they are getting better and better. I look at it online every day, and when I'm traveling across the country, I don't want the hard copy. I want to see it online. Um, they still are kind of a little print focus, but they're getting better and better um, at, attack, uh, at attaching it. They, they come out at 7 a.m., they update their website, but who's going to a website? So, you know, they will sometimes break news. You know, they were sort of one of the first to say, hey, classes are closing. They are very focused on the questions here and pushing the envelope to get better answers because I'm part of leadership here, but I'm very proud of our students pushing us and the chancellor and all the leaders to get better answers. They want transparency at this time of COVID-19 and their lives are affected by the decisions here. And so I think they will be more, back to my point, Doug, I think they're going to be more affected by their relationship with the power on campus than they will with the Trump kind of attitude toward um, the media. Right. And, and lastly, you know, you work directly with this next generation of journalists and, and to some extent, obviously, with things like the Daily Tar Heel, a, a young but current generation. But these will be the next round of White House and congressional reporters. They'll be the next state house reporters or going to, you know, medium sized cities that have become news deserts, as you mentioned, even with all of the real structural challenges um, that we see the journalism industry facing, you know, think of McClatchy, for instance. I know you still have a lot of optimism here. So what can you fill us at a time when truth is under attack? What is the good news that you can tell us? The young people are smart. They are focused. They want to be global. That means they want to be students, people of their time. So if you live in North Carolina, you know, one of our biggest companies is owned by China. So they want to understand the relationship with China. They just don't want to badmouth China. It's Lenovo is a company, you know. Um, they are ambitious. I love the fact they're ambitious. They want to experience the world beyond them. They are leaders. They write well. We don't hear that a lot about, you know, young people. They do write well. They are willing to think, and they're sometimes humble. And at least here in North Carolina, they are nice. They are kind. And um, I am very optimistic that if they take the values that they are learning here forward into our business, we're going to be okay in 20 years. And I'll wake up every morning and I guess turn on my, I don't know what device I'll be turning on, but I will be getting information that will keep me free. And that's what I want for the America 20 years from now. And keep me smart. Great. Susan King, the dean and John Thomas Carr, distinguished professor of the Hussman School of Journalism and Media at the University of North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining us on The Politics of Truth. Delighted to join you, Doug. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan, 
Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.